Get ready to step into scripture with Tina. Hey everyone, welcome to the Step Into Scripture podcast. We are kicking off season two today. My name is Tina Wilson. I'm a pastor's wife, a mom of seven, a Bible teacher, and an author. And together with my friend Stacy, we have built this podcast around helping people grow closer to the Lord and walk closely with Christ by committing themselves to reading His whole word. And we are going to take a different path this season. In season one, we answered objections that we've heard or that we've used as to why it's really not necessary to read the whole Word of God. Often an objection is that the Bible has some confusing things in it, things that we don't understand. And so in season two, we want to continue walking on that path toward reading the whole Bible by answering questions, hard questions that people have about Scripture, that you read them and they just trip you up and you're not sure what to do with them. But before we get into that, Stacy, in case anyone's new to the podcast, will you go ahead and introduce yourself? Absolutely. I'm Stacy Vines. Tina and I have been stepping through Scripture for um, over a decade now. It is a privilege and an honor to be a part of this podcast and be a part of going through God's Word with all of you um, as we venture into finding Him on every page and every verse. Uh, Like Tina, I am a mom, a homeschool mom, a Bible teacher, um, and I just enjoy finding the good things about God and sharing them um, with other people as we step through Scripture together. So I'm super pumped about this season. I'm excited to get into these questions that have been submitted. This feels a lot like a Bible study, which is totally my comfort zone. So I'm really excited to step into it. I am too. This is a passion of both of ours is just sitting and studying the Bible with people. And we don't want to give the wrong impression here. We don't have the answers to every single question. What we do have is this commitment that we will look for it. And as much as we can find it, that's what we hope to do. So to develop this season, like last season, we polled online groups associated with our home church ecclesia and asked them about objections they've heard to reading the whole word of God. This time we're asking what questions do you have? have about the Word of God. And already we're getting some wild questions that are going to be a lot of fun to take on. Now we're going to do our best to answer these questions just with Scripture. Some questions about obscure things, right. uh, people go outside of Scripture and start developing all sorts of theories, and you can find a YouTube video for anything. Right. As closely as we can, we're just going to stick in Scripture with the exception of times when there are some very well-documented historical resources that can supplement the Scripture. So that's our path, and today we are going to take on a hard question that was posed, did God order genocide? That's what we're looking at today. Now, I think this is a great question because it's one of those places where God gets a bad rap sometimes, and it's an undue bad rap, and truly, it comes from not reading Mm -hmm. the entire Bible and getting to know the fullness of the character of God that's revealed in that. But genocide is found in Scripture. We do find that there. And so to kick us off in this conversation, we want to just look at a few accounts of genocide in the Bible. But first, we're going to define genocide. So let's start right right there. Genocide is the deliberate killing of a large number of people from a particular nation or ethnic group in the aim of destroying that group. So that's what genocide is. And now let's look at a few accounts of genocide or attempted genocide that we find in Scripture. The first one I want to mention is found in Judges chapters 19 through 21. Now, Judges is a time in Israel's history when they don't yet have a king, Mm -hmm. and yet they have rebelled against God. God was supposed to be their king, but they have not subjected themselves to his reign and rule. And so God has raised up judges who continually deliver them out of this cycle where they fall into sin, Mm -hmm. and as a punishment, they're conquered by an enemy nation. And so a judge steps in and brings them out of danger, out of captivity, rescues the nation of Israel, and then in their comfort and safety, they again fall back into sin and land themselves back in the cycle. But through the cycles of the judges that we see in scripture, they are getting progressively worse. Every time they fall, they're falling harder and harder. And so by the time you get to the end of the book of Judges, and that's where this account is found, the last three chapters, 19, 20, and 21, it is a mess. Right. It's such a huge mess. I'm not much of a crier, but I want to cry reading the last chapters of the book of Judges. So here's the setup 
for the near genocide that we find in the book of Judges. There was a Levite, someone from the priestly tribe of the nation of Israel, and he's traveling with his concubine, which is basically in scripture, a woman who belonged to him as property. And that I'm sure does not sit well with you, but we'll talk about that in a future episode so you can hang on to it. So he's traveling with this concubine and he spends the night in Gibeah, which is a land that belongs to the tribe of Benjamin, another of the 12 tribes. While he's staying there, a gang surrounds the house where this Levite is staying and demands to have sex with him. Well, to fend off these criminals, the host of the home where the Levite is staying offers instead to give them his virgin daughter and concubine, but they refuse. And so the Levite then to try and stop this attack of people who are coming in trying to commit this sexual act, this act of violence against the Levite, he sends out his own concubine to him and they literally rape and abuse her to death Mm -hmm. all through the night. Now, in retaliation for this act, the Levite cuts the concubine's body into pieces, and then he sent those pieces out to the 12 tribes, and this basically initiated a civil war. Now, rather than giving up the rapist from Gibeah, which is what the Benjamites should have done, the people who were guilty of this act, they should have been sent to judgment and to punishment. The Benjamites, instead, they mobilize a whole army and the rest of the Israelites did the same. So Mm -hmm. now there's a clash going on, a civil war in Israel. Now, in this civil war, although the Benjamites inflicted heavy losses on the other tribes of Israel, the tribes of Israel did prevail, and they killed the soldiers, and they pressed the battle into the rest of the cities of Benjamin. And in this, they almost turned what should have just been capital punishment into a complete genocide, a complete wiping out of the entire tribe of Benjamin. And in this, they also vowed that they would no longer let their daughters marry members of the tribe of Benjamin so that while they almost wiped the tribe out completely through killing them, they also could not have a lineage going forward. Now, there's more to this story, and that's not the end of the craziness that happens in these final chapters of Judges, and that's disturbing. Just in this little bit of this podcast, we have said some very disturbing things, but again, I want you to remember this is a time when the nation has rebelled against God's rule, and no one is ruling. Right. No one is leading. And for the sake of this episode, we're going to just stick right there in in this event, in this uh, line of things that happened because of the Benjamites' sin against the Levites' concubine. And here's what I want to say about it. As terrible as, as these things were right. that we've just considered, these last three chapters of Judges, the conditions that we see there truly aren't that different from things that we see in the world today. There is a prevalence throughout our world of trafficking and of rape and of abuse and perversion of justice. And Israel's response in this account to that atrocity that we saw happen with the Levite's concubine, I want to read it to you. It's Judges 19.30. Everyone who saw it was saying to one another, such a thing has never been seen or done, not since the day the Israelites came up out of Egypt. Just imagine, we must do something, so speak up. Now, I want you to hold on to that because the something that they did was near genocide. The something that they decided to do was to seek to, instead of just punish the people who had perpetrated the crime, they tried to wipe out the entire line of Benjamin. That is, by definition, genocide. And yet... In their attempt to deliver this justice, God did intervene Mm -hmm. and he did preserve that tribe. And what they did failed because Judges 17.6 and Judges 21.25, two scriptures that say the exact same thing. And here's what it is. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. So the point I want to make about this near genocide, this attempt at genocide was, we are answering the question, did God order genocide? And in this account, God did not order it. God rescued people from it, but the genocide itself was a result of everyone doing whatever they saw fit, which sounded righteous. 
Something terrible has been done. Someone speak up. We must do something. And yet in doing what they saw fit, they were not carrying out a commission from God. And that's an excellent example of the correct way to define genocide. And we see another example in scripture of an attempted genocide. And this time, uh, later in Israel's history, we see that Persia comes against and tries an attempt to commit genocide against the Jews. So after the nation of Judah had been conquered by Babylon, they've been exiled from their homeland, and now they're in Persian rule. And so this scenario that we're seeing play out is all found in the book of Esther. And so they are living in um, they are living as exiles in a land that is not their own, in a culture that is not their own, and they are meant to be those who represent the kingdom of God to the outside nations, yeah. whether they're in exile or whether they're not. And so here's what, um, while, while they're there under Persian rule, a man named Mordecai, a Jew uh, related to Esther, who was chosen to be queen by the Persian king Xerxes, um, he fails to bow down to one of the high-ranking officials, Haman. But there's so much more going on in the background. There's a background song playing there from uh, from hundreds of years before. And here's the account that we find in Esther, chapter 3, verses 5 through 10. It says, When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Now, this was Haman enraged that Mordecai, a Jew, would not bow down to him. A lot of prejudice, um, a lot of issues with just the, the sanctity of life in general. Yeah. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. The idea of, genis- of genocide has been implanted. He, again, similar to Israel going against not just the the perpetrators of the actual crime, they went against the entire tribe because of who they were and what their lineage was. Here, Haman decides, oh, he's a Jew, so I'm going to go after all of his people, not just Mordecai. He actually scorned his own idea of killing just Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. In verse 7, In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, the poor, that is the lot, was cast in the presence of Haman to select a day and month. And the lot fell on the twelfth month in the month of Adar. So Haman is casting lots to decide when he is going to carry out this act of genocide against the Jews. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. So, of course, this pleased the king, and he took his signet ring from his finger— and gave it to Haman and basically said, do with these people as you please. That is another good example of attempted genocide. But again, God is going to intervene. He is not orchestrating the killing of these people, but he is going to intervene. And the whole book of Esther tells the story about a young Jewish girl who was chosen to be the queen by the king of Persia, King Xerxes. And this made her, this put her in a unique position. And we can identify with this unique position. Um, And it's a very quoted uh, piece of scripture, um, Esther 4, 14, who knows? But maybe you have come to this royal position for such a time as this. That is Mordecai saying to Esther, who knows, but maybe this is the only reason your life has played out in the way that it has. You are the one with access to the king. You are the one who can save our people. And Mordecai is pleading with her to have courage. And she responds with courage. Again, here is a genocide attempted by man. And in this case, not because there was no king, as there was in the judge's account that you pointed out before. But here it's because there was a reckless and drunken, ungodly king. Yes. And we're going to hang on to this account of genocide with Haman wanting to wipe out the Jews, Mordecai pleading with Esther to have courage and to be brave. We're going to hold on to that because we're going to 
see how this all comes full circle and what happened in that background song we were just talking about later on in this episode. But to move forward with one more example in the New Testament, one that we can all relate to today is Saul's attempted genocide against Christians. Uh, Right before we were filming this episode, I was looking up on the World Watch list that last year in 2022, there were 6,521 Christians murdered for their faith. And nearly 15,000 Christians are displaced from their homes right now because of their faith. Wow! And so it was was an eye-opening article for me to read right before talking about this concept of genocide and who is responsible and is this God's doing. But in the New Testament, we see Christians, followers of Jesus, just like me and you, being uh, having an attempted genocide carried out against them. And so in the New Testament, this is the very early days of the church. This comes from the book of Acts, where the, the New Testament church is actually born, yeah. specifically in chapter 7. We see Christian martyrdom, the very first martyr to give his life because of the gospel message, um, because it was enough for him Uh, to hold on to even in the face of persecution, even in the face of losing his life. And this account um, is from Acts chapter 7, is verses 59 to 60, and then at the beginning of chapter 8, verse 1. It says, while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep, and it was Saul who approved they're killing him. Mm. Saul, uh, later we're going to read in Acts chapter 9, while he was still breathing murderous threats against the Lord's disciples, this uh, Jew of all Jews, right? Uh, He had the best Jewish resume. He knew the law. He was righteous in these ways. He was murdering Christians for following Jesus and not following what he thought was the, the way of God. But Saul at the time wasn't just after the life of one follower of Jesus. He wasn't just after the life of one Christian. Saul was on his way to commit genocide. He wanted to wipe out the entire people group who followed the way. In Acts chapter nine, the first two verses, it says, meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to take to the synagogue in Damascus so that if he found anyone there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So Saul not only had the motive, the intent, and the mission Mm -hmm. to commit genocide, but now he has the approval. Now he has the official authority to go through and round up those who follow Jesus and take them as prisoners, ultimately for their destruction. That was his intention. But again, God intervenes. Yes, He is always faithful to his promises. And we see later after Saul's conversion to who we now know and love as our brother, Paul, yes. we hear his own testimony about what was going on internally during this time as he watched Stephen give his life for the gospel. And as he himself was on his way to carry out genocide, here's what he says happened. Acts chapter 22, verses four and five. He says, I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, yeah. arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison. As the high priest and all of the council, they can all testify. I even obtained letters from to them from their associates in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. So he's, te- he's admitting in himself, he's admitting in his writings that I had this mission and motive. This is where my heart stood, but the Lord intervened. And like the genocide attempts against the Benjamites and the Jews, the genocide attempt against the Christians was thwarted because God literally stopped Paul in his tracks on his way to Damascus to deliver those letters that would give him the authority to carry out that genocide. And these are three examples of attempted genocide in scripture. They all took place not because God had ordered them, but on the opposite, leaders were in rebellion against God. And whether it was because they had no king or the king was unruly or the leaders were in rebellion, it was the men involved. It was the heart of man that was attempting to carry out this genocide and God consistently and faithfully stepped in. Yeah, 
Absolutely. So God, instead of ordering genocide, what we see is him stopping genocide. But what do we do then with the accounts where God is actually the one orchestrating Mm -hmm. the killing rather than the one preventing the killing? So we want to look at a few of those examples, and let's answer that. And we're going to start with probably the most obvious example, the Mm -hmm. most well-known example, and that is the global flood that's given to us in Genesis. Now, before God cleansed the whole world through this global flood, Scripture tells us that the entire earth was just sick Mm -hmm. with sin. Genesis 6, 5 says, "...the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil Mm -hmm. all the time." Now, most people are probably familiar with this Bible account, and we learn here that despite all this wickedness, there's one man named Noah who walked in righteousness, and so because of that, he found favor with God. And so when the flood came, this one man and his wife and his three sons and their wives, eight people in all, they were saved from the complete destruction, from the wiping out of the whole rest of the world. Now, what can we say about this as it relates to the character of God? Right. Would God order genocide? Well, we can turn to 1 Peter chapter 3 and get a fuller view in the New Testament. And I want to read to you verses 18 to 22. And we're going to look at those briefly here, and we're going to circle back to this account just a little later. But it says, For Christ suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Mm -hmm. He was put to death in the body and made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago. Listen, when God waited patiently Mm -hmm. in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight and all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and power in submission to him. Mm -hmm. What I want you to get here is that God only accomplished this judgment after he waited patiently Mm -hmm. in the days of Noah now, just like the Esther account, like Stacy said, there's a background song here, and I want to circle back to it in a minute. But for now, just recognize that God is the one who orchestrated the global flood, which killed most of the human race. Right. And yet, he only did it after he had waited patiently for them to come to repentance. Another scripture we'll point to here is Genesis 6.3. God says, just before we we just read that every inclination of the human heart was only evil all the time, God said in Genesis 6, 3, my spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal, or this word is also translated corrupt, and their days will be 120 years. This is often understood to be a time of respite that God was offering before the flood, indicating that for 120 years, Noah was preaching Mm -hmm. while he was building, and God is is waiting patiently for people to come to repentance, and yet no one came. Right. And so this global destruction only comes after more than a century of opportunity Mm -hmm. and of preaching for people to repent, and that being completely rejected by them. Right. Now, the next most well-known account of of widespread destruction orchestrated by God in the Bible was probably the account of Sodom and Gomorrah. Like the whole world at the time of the flood, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were completely sick with sin. God described that in Genesis 18, 20 and 21. Then the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. And if not, I will know. Now, I want you Hmm. to sit with that a minute and think, what does God mean, the outcry that has reached me? The outcry that reaches God is our prayers. Right. And so for the outcry of their sin to be so great and God needing to see if that truly is the case, what that means is that their abuse of people right. is so terrible that people are calling out to God, much like the martyrs whose spirits cry out in the book of Revelation, God, when will you vindicate us? Right. When will you bring about judgment? And so... You know, a genocide, like what we've just looked at in Scripture, uh, orchestrated by man, is a mass killing 
intending to wipe out a group of people because of their heritage or because of their religion. Mm -hmm. The difference we find with God is that when he is wiping out the masses, he is doing it because they are perpetrating such violent, obscene crimes against other people, against innocent people. And so God says he will go down to see if this is true. And he revealed this plan to Abraham because Abraham was his faithful follower. And then Abraham, despite this, despite the outcry about the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah, God gives Abraham still an opportunity to contend with these cities. He's still waiting patiently, just like in the days of Noah. And I'll just read you that account. Genesis 18, 23 to 25. Then Abraham approached him, that's God, and said, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? And so God agrees with that. He will spare the city for 50 people. And six times Abraham comes back to God pleading for this city. Mm -hmm. And every single time God granted his request. And he agreed to spare the city for the sake of 50 righteous 45, of 40, of 30, of 20, and then of only 10. God never says, I will wipe them all out if you can find anyone who is righteous and following me. But even when God's angels visit the city, here is what we see in the residents there who rather than producing just a few righteous inhabitants, they just compounded their wickedness. Genesis 19, 4 to 7 says of the the angels, the messengers of God, who he is sending to evaluate what's happening there against the outcry that he's heard. It says, before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, all the men surrounded the house. They called out to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Lot went inside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, no, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Do you hear Lot there preaching Mm -hmm. repentance to them, saying, turn away from your evil ways? And continually Lot pled with them to turn away, but they refused to relent and they refused to repent. And God was unable to find even 10 righteous people in this city. And so he destroyed the cities. And just like the judgment on the world through the global flood, this destruction only came after every opportunity to repent and after every person given that opportunity said, no, we choose evil, we choose wickedness, we choose violence and abuse against other people. And so God stepped in to act. Yeah, and only because of their unwillingness to repent. Yes. And that's the difference. Yes. The motive behind that was totally different than the right. motive behind Saul before he became Paul or the Israelites against the Benjamites. Yeah. You know, the motive behind God and his judgment is totally different. So so far in the episode, we've dropped a couple of hints that we're going to come back around full circle on a few things and we're on our way to get to those few things that have been the background music that yes. have kind of led through some of the stories that we've talked about so far. But probably one of the most often references Um, of God carrying out destruction against people or against people, inhabitants of a land, is the Canaanites. Yeah. So, so far in this podcast, we've talked a lot about God choosing the nation of Israel and making them a royal priesthood. And it was one of the vehicles that he's used to bring about his redemptive plan throughout history. And so along the way, a part of that plan was a promised land. Yes. That promised land was inhabited by people. But God uh, while it does appear on its face to have ordered that he would have ordered the destruction of these people, we're going to find that his motive um, is just and that his ways are just. And so uh, we see in the account of the Canaanites that when Moses sent spies into this land, this promised land, that they brought back reports about the people groups who inhabited the area. And we see their description of this in Numbers 13, verse 29. It says, 
Uh, The Amalekites lived in the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites lived in the hill country, and the Canaanites lived near the sea and along the Jordan. So when Israel was moving towards the promised land, God had given them some pretty specific instructions, and it deals with the people living in this land. Deuteronomy 20, verses 16 through 18, give us these instructions. And now this this is God instructing his people. He says, however, it says, however, in the cities of the nations of the Lord your God that he is giving you as an inheritance, don't leave anything alive that breathes. Hmm. Completely destroy them. And them, he says, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. As the Lord your God has commanded you, otherwise, and here's his why, here's his motive. They will teach you to follow all of the detestable things that they do in worshiping their gods, and you will sin against the Lord your God. Now, over and over, we've talked about God's intention, God's redemptive plan, the overarching story of God wanting to be in intimate fellowship with us. And at this time in the story that he has written, His mode of doing that was through the nation of Israel. God's plan in his law was that he could be in fellowship literally with them on their way to the promised land. And so their sin would separate that. The barrier is what God is working to remove between him and his creation. He's saying, if you do not do this, if you do not annihilate this thing that will will cause a divide between us, You're going to fall. You're going to you're going to fail again in this cycle. So obviously, Scripture gives us the reason for the destruction there, and it's so that they do not teach Israel their wicked ways. But I want us to recognize, just like people have been given plenty of opportunity to repent before the flood, before Sodom and Gomorrah, the people of Canaan also had plenty of time to repent as well. And we see in Genesis chapter fifteen verse 16, exactly how long of an opportunity they had. God tells the Israelites, in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. God, just like in the account of the flood and the account of Sodom and Gomorrah, here, even when he is wanting to give his promise to his his chosen people, is waiting patiently for generations because he knew that their sin would reach a level that would warrant their destruction. And we're going to talk about um, in later episodes why sin, the penalty for sin is death and what we all do and how we all participate in a similar um, call, even here as New Testament believers. But just because we aren't given the details of the opportunity that God gave to the Canaanites, doesn't mean that he didn't offer it. Right. Just like we don't hear the sermons uh, or the, the the pleading of Noah for 120 years yes. while he's building the ark. We can fill in the blanks of what it looks like today yeah. um, in the ways in which we plead with our uh, peers and our coworkers and our family and friends uh, to submit their lives to God. So earlier we talked about this background song. So that is playing in the background yeah. 400 years later when we see... Uh, the Israelites finally moving in to the land of Canaan. And we find that example when Joshua sends spies, right? He sends spies out and he comes back with a report of what is in Jericho. And there, Rahab, a prostitute, finds these spies. She hides and protects God's people. And because of her actions, when the walls fall and Israel conquers this land, her and her family are spared. So for more than 400 years, these people could have turned away. The Amorites could have turned away from their wickedness prior to Israel's invasion, yet they didn't. And even though the invasion was uh, beginning, an opportunity for repentance was presented. And we see that repentance brought about redemption and salvation, specifically for Rahab, the prostitute who risked her life 
to hide and protect the spies from Israel while they were coming in to spy on the land of Jericho. She hid them, and because of her acts, she and her whole family were spared. And we read about that in the destruction of Jericho in Joshua chapter 6. But later in the book of Matthew, Rahab is mentioned as one of only four women who are within the genealogy of Jesus. She's married into the community and becomes no less than the ancestor of Jesus. And this is a powerful picture of God's salvation that is always available. Rahab was a Gentile. She's an outsider. She is an immor- She has an immoral past, but she was saved from death and became a part of God's story for the entire salvation for yeah. the, the the salvation of the entire world because she heard about God, she believed in God, and then she acted on that belief. Yes, even when it would have cost her her life and. Why? Why would she have done that? This invading city, this could have this could have just welled up anger in her and wanting to uh, fight back. But here's what she said was her why when she met these spies from Israel. This comes from Joshua chapter two, verses nine through 11. She says, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sahan and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, who you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed failed because of you. For the Lord, your God, is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Rahab heard of the goodness of God, the power of God, and she believed in that power. She saw the effect that it had on others. And so what does that tell us? It tells us that the events in Exodus had made their way to Jericho. Yes. It tells us that the goodness of God will spread. And it tells us that Rahab repented and disassociated herself in order to become a part of what God was doing and yes. with his people. She responded, she repented, yes. and others did not. And the difference is she was spared. Right. God's judgment was carried out not because he was attempting genocide, but because he was aiming for repentance. Yes. And Rahab picked up on it and she carried it out. But a side note is that every time Israel did not completely destroy a wicked group as they did there in Jericho, they followed through and carried out God's command. But when they did not, in other accounts, the murder, the violence, the wickedness would only increase as a result of their failed attempt to follow God. And as an example, we see one of God's prophets, Samuel, had given these instructions to Saul, the first king of Israel. And we find this in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses two and three. So this is Samuel speaking to Saul, king over Israel. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. God does not forget those who persecute us. He does not forget those who act unjust or evil against his people. Verse three, now go and attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Here's what he says. Do not spare them. Put to death men, women, children, Mm. infants, cattle, sheep, camels, and donkeys. Mm. Now that's a hard thing for us to to hear on its its face, just those two verses, verses two and three. And that's something that people can struggle with. And it's a reason that God can earn a bad rap. But because God is attempting to... uh, preserve what he is working for, right? This redemption of all of his creation. We we should read it with eyes that see God wants all sin driven out. Yes. Nothing can be spared that is sinful. And so we see this as the background music that we've been talking about. This, uh, the attempted genocide that we talked about earlier um, in Persia, um, while the nation of Israel were, while the Jews were living there um, in exile, that that guy Haman, who had convinced himself that he was going to commit genocide against all of the Jews yes. because he had a deep hatred for the Jews, that guy 
was an Amalekite. Yes. He was a descendant of King Agag, um, which was the king of the Amalekites at the time that Saul did not follow through with the instructions of the prophet Samuel that comes from, Samuel says, the Lord Almighty. Yes. Do not spare them. Do not, even down to the cattle, the sheep, and the camels. Nothing can stay. But Saul did not do that. Saul, uh, he kept for himself the best animals, and he did not, um, he did not carry out the, the, the killing of the queen who was pregnant, and the line continued. King Agag um, and his descendants were called Agagites. Haman is an Agagite. Yeah. He is an ascendant. He is an Amalekite. And so uh, what, they, what Saul failed to do led to the attempted genocide that we started this episode with. Wow. It was a lack of obedience to what God uh, knows and knows better. So more than 500 years prior to that attempted genocide in Persia, um, that's when God commanded King Saul to totally destroy the Amalekites, but he didn't do it. And so here's the point. Genocide, on, as, as it's defined, as we use this, mm-hmm. is not a God thing. No. It's a man thing. God carries out righteous judgment. And when man fails to obey God's plan by coming to repentance of our evil ways and ridding everything in our life that is evil that separates us from God, the result is genocide. And so just before we go into how this shapes our worldview and how it shapes our view of God, we have to agree that as it's defined, genocide is a result of of a sinful man and righteous judgment is carried out by a holy God. Yes, and there's another righteous judgment. You know, we've looked at, what do we say about it when God orchestrates the killing and the destruction? He did it in the flood after more than a century of calls to repentance and no one could be found righteous. He did it in Sodom and Gomorrah after opportunities to repent and no one could be found Mm -hmm. righteous. He ordered it in Canaan after more than 400 years of opportunities to repent. And through that, if any were found righteous, they were spared. Right. But there's a final killing of all the wicked in a righteous judgment that we have to look forward to. And it's the final judgment of God. Revelation 20 describes it. And it's it's pretty cut and dry. Mm -hmm. It's pretty simple. It's summed up in one verse. Revelation 20, verse 15 Anyone whose name was not found in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, what we've looked at this morning has not been genocide by God. It's been righteous judgment by God, and yet it's never been a complete judgment. Mm -hmm. It's always been a partial judgment. It was a judgment of all but eight. Right. It was a judgment on two cities. Mm -hmm. It was a judgment on inhabitants of the land that would become known as Palestine, But the final judgment, the one that's described in Revelation 20, is the culmination of all of those judgments, of every partial judgment that God has carried out since the beginning of the world, from his judgment in the flood, judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, wiping out the people of Canaan. All of them had an opportunity to repent. Even those who lived before God came to us in the form of Mm -hmm. a man, Jesus Christ. Now, I said we want to circle back to 1 Peter 3. Before we do that, let me read you 1 Peter 1, 10 and 11. It says, concerning this salvation, what we're talking about here, this coming to repentance and being spared from destruction. Because that's the the point. That's the point. All of the judgment, all of the destruction is to annihilate sin. Yes. Not Not the creation. Right. But it brings us into salvation. Yes. And so Peter writes, concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that has come to you searched intently and with greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances, listen, to which the spirit of Christ in them Mm -hmm. was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. See, through these Old Testament accounts of God's mass destruction, Even though Jesus had not yet come and tabernacled with us, Christ is eternal. And 1 Peter says that his spirit spoke through those even who preceded them. Right. And so 1 Peter 3, we read that earlier, says that the spirit of Christ 
before the flood spoke to, 1 Peter 3.20, those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. And 2 Peter 2 even gives us further insight into this story of the Sodom and Gomorrah destruction. Mm-hmm. 2 Peter 2.8 says about Lot, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Now, if if Lot was righteous living among them in torment, Lot was trying to turn them from wickedness. Right. We saw Lot calling them to repentance when they were surrounding his home, trying to rape the very angels of God. But this account in Second Peter tells us that Lot was there with them day after day, mm-hmm. tormented by the unrighteousness around them. And it shows us that God continually, through every judgment, allows plenty of time to repent. Right. And the same thing goes for the final mass destruction right. that will come when all of the wicked whose names are not found in the book of life are thrown into the lake of fire. And I don't want us to miss the connection that we've seen about God's opportunity to repent and the destruction that follows people's rejection of him in the Old Testament. Because the character of God, his loving nature that allows people plenty of time to repent, mm-hmm. that hasn't changed. Right. Even in his commission that Jesus gave to us, his instructions as he was getting ready to ascend into heaven, we hear it repeated because what does he say there? Essentially, subdue the nations right. and take the territory for the kingdom. The same thing he said to Uh, Israel when they were crossing into the land of Canaan, like you just described. Here's how it sounded when Jesus said it in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's important Mm -hmm. because what we saw in every attempt to genocide is the authority of God had been put aside. People were not submitted to that. Leaders were not submitted to that. But now Jesus steps in and says, I am king. All the power of God over heaven and earth has been given to me. And he says, therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Right. See that the command, the commission is still you go in, you take over the land. That's right. And you kill out the sin mm-hmm. because Jesus said baptizing them. Mm-hmm. And here's what Romans 6, 3, and 4 says about that. Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death mm-hmm. in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. We're still told to go in right. and drive out the wickedness, kill off the wickedness. Right. But we still do it like God always said by calling people to repentance, right. calling them to die to the sin so that they are spared right. from the final destruction, which is God's judgment on the wicked. See, his righteous judgment has always been reserved only for the wicked. That's right. This has never been about genocide, mm-hmm. and we can't call it genocide and then blame him, right. blame it on God, if we're failing to walk in the commission, which is what? Sharing his That's truth right. with other people and calling them to repentance and to salvation. If we're not doing that, if we're not engaging in evangelism and discipleship, then who's really guilty of genocide? Absolutely. When God said, you know what's coming, Mm -hmm. you go rescue them. Right. Because God is about righteousness. God is calling all people to repentance. And now he is using us as the vehicle to do it. The spirit of Christ, the same spirit of Mm -hmm. Christ that 1 Peter 1 tells us was speaking through the prophets long before Jesus, calling people to repentance. The same spirit of Christ that spoke through Noah for 120 years, trying to see people spared from the flood. That spirit of Christ now lives in us. Right. That's what Jesus meant when he said in the Great Commission, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Right. My spirit is in you. It's speaking through you and it's calling people to repentance because genocide, that's what man would do. Mm -hmm. And really, really, if we fail to warn people and to call them to repentance and to love them like Jesus and to walk them to God, we are the ones guilty of it. Absolutely. We are guilty just like Israel was guilty before God. Just like 
you know, we talk about this all the time in our in this podcast about these vehicles and these these methods that God would use to bring uh, himself back into personal relationship with his yeah. creation. Um, I want to piggyback on something that you said. It is our responsibility. We are all still dancing the same dance of driving out sin, yes. pushing out wickedness, and and putting it to death. And here's the why. Um, in Romans chapter 10, verses 13, this is Paul writing, the same Paul who was once Saul, yeah. um, setting out to commit genocide. Here is the call that he gives to all of us as followers, brothers and sisters in Jesus. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call on him if they have not believed? And, and I want to just put that into into our terms. How can they repent if they don't believe and if they don't know? He yeah. goes on and says, and how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without someone to tell them? And how can someone preach unless they are sent? We are sent. Jesus himself has commissioned us and yes. Paul drills it down to the nuts and bolts for us that it is our job to share so that others may believe and call on him and also put away their wickedness by repenting and being baptized and aligning themselves with his death and his resurrection so that we will all stand looking like Jesus on the day of judgment, this final annihilation of wickedness and this final righteous judgment by God. And just to drive home that point, the the question that that we're attempting to talk through, letting scripture speak as we've stepped through it, is does God commit genocide? No. No. Man has committed genocide. Man continues to have genocide in its heart, but it's because there is no repentance and there's no acceptance of King Jesus who has been ushered in as the right king who executes righteous judgment. And why this is important, in my opinion, is because it does shape our view of God. Yes. If we see God, if we begin reading a few verses here and a few verses there without an open-ended commitment to reading his entire word to understand his nature, then we're going to see him as a vengeful God who is full of making war and bloodshed. And the world can use words like genocide against us to automatically demoralize our position in God and uh, and God's moral authority over our life. But I hope now that we have stepped through a lot of scripture together, we can see that genocide is man's thing. Righteous judgment is God's thing. And we find when we read the whole Bible that the character of God affirms for us his loving nature, Mm -hmm. his long-suffering intent to see us come to repentance. And so, no, he is not a God of genocide. He doesn't commit it, and he doesn't order it. He carries out righteous judgment, and then he calls us Mm -hmm. to be his agents of rescue so that people are spared from judgment. That's exactly right. And so maybe you need a resource to help you be that agent, right? To have the beautiful feet, as Paul calls it, to carry the gospel. Um, A lot of the things that we've talked about today in this episode, the majority of it has come from this resource that Tina has put together for us, Step Into Scripture. Um, It is available online, and you can pick up your copy, and it is an accompaniment uh, to reading your your Bible from start to finish in 365 days, connecting all of these beautiful woven pieces of God's grace and redemptive plan together. She has put a lot of uh, work in tying all of those together for us. And so I encourage you to pick up a copy of that as we continue to step through scripture in this season. Thank you, Stacy, And that's available on Amazon and at renew.org. So We look forward to seeing you all back here next week when we will answer another question that you all have submitted to us about the Bible. See ya.